Uh, just kind of by way of announcements, I know I've shared this with some of you as well, but since we're going online, and also um, Brother John, who is scheduled to be preaching tonight, continuing our series through the first epistle of Peter. He's uh, feeling under the weather tonight, so firstly and foremost, I just want to admonish you to keep him in your prayers, um, that he would have a swift and, and happy recovery. And so, taking a break from our uh, study through the first epistle of Peter, we're actually going to be go um, to the Gospel of John. Uh, some of you who are here tonight are in my Sunday school class here at Lakeview, where at 9.15 a.m. every Sunday morning, we have been studying verse by verse through uh, St. John's Gospel. It's been a tremendous study, and, and so we're actually going to be revisiting some verses that will be a refresher to those of you who have been in my class, but obviously these are the words of life, and they are eternal, so I want you to... I want to invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, um, going to verse 17. And I want to invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of the Word of God. We read here in Holy Scripture, in, in John chapter 11, verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just, we thank you. We thank you for every good and every spiritual blessing that you've mercifully and graciously given to us who are your saints, who are your children. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to come tonight to worship your name, to glorify your name, dear God. Father, we just pray that your name would be glorified in the service. We pray that the truth of your word, the truth of your holy scripture would be preserved, that it would be made clear, that it would be made known, dear God. I pray that the Holy Spirit would impress this truth upon the heart of the preacher and, and the heart of all those who listen, dear God. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So there is a song that, that has been put out that contains the line, everybody knows that death is larger than life. 
And, and I think that's, that, that, that's very insightful, and I think that is very true. Human mortality is a concept that has been the focus of much of the artwork that mankind has produced over the centuries. Now this is largely due to the fact that it is something we all, somewhere inside, we know that it is coming. And we know we can't do anything in our own power to stop it. Man lives with the knowledge of and the fear of death throughout his entire life. The book of Hebrews says that the fear of death has enslaved mankind. Now men and women will try and reconcile this fear, will try to resolve this fear of death uh, through a myriad of different ways by distracting themselves with maybe pleasure, entertainment, or substances, and there are even some very religious ways to try and suppress this knowledge as well. But the fact of the matter is, there is only one solution to the problem of death. And that solution is a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in this passage that we are going to be looking at tonight here in the Gospel of John, we see how Jesus, in the midst of a grieving family, a family who has just lost their brother to illness, we see how Jesus shows us that he is the solution to our understanding that we are to one day leave this world for good. So tonight we are going to be looking, as I have mentioned in the Gospel of John, looking at one of the most, well, John chapter 11 is one of the most riveting and remembered sections in all of Holy Scripture. This is where we read of the telling of God's raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, as previously mentioned, the reality of death, the reality of human mortality, is a harsh thing to consider. It's, it, it's a weighty subject matter. It is, it is to be treated with solemnity. It's a, it's a serious thing that we are talking about, but we can't do what so many do and try and just distract ourselves from it, to turn the TV on, to turn the internet on, or whatever it is, and just try and just get your mind on something else. No, Christians are called to be sober-minded. What does that mean? It means we need to be aware. We need to be people who think about things. We need to talk about death. We need to think about death. We need to think about eternity. We need to spend time on this matter. So death, it's something that, though the human race may try through various different ways to conquer it, to control it, the reality is we have no control over death. Death belongs to a power that is beyond us, that is greater than us. And death in this historical narrative in John chapter 11 has come upon a particular man, a man named Lazarus. Now, one of the things that we immediately recognize at the beginning of this chapter, following the flow up to the verses where we're going to be focusing tonight, is, is we see really how the providence of God is displayed in the lives of the people involved. If you read the narrative, when Jesus hears of Lazarus' having become ill, what he says is, this illness 
does not lead to death. It, speaking of the illness, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, right off the bat, what Jesus' words establish is the reality that through this event, through this affliction, through this hardship, the sickness of a loved one, even in this very incident, God has a plan and a purpose for it. He is going to use this for his glory, his own glory, which is the highest and greatest of all purposes. As Christian people, our hearts and our affections should be so, so God-centered and God-focused and God-conscious. We should rejoice that God is working all things so as to glorify himself. We should rejoice to sing his praises simply due to the fact of how good he is. That God would be glorified and that this is, this is the very thing he is using the sickness and death of Lazarus for. That God would be glorified is, is a high and lofty purpose. It is something that we should crave to happen. Something that we should be passionate about is the glory of God. And are not we as Christians, people who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? If that is true of us, if God is actively working in your life right now to conform you to the image of his Son, then your heart and your mind ought to be set on those things which his heart and mind are set upon. And that is chiefly the glory of God. We see this instantly when we read in John chapter 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And what we eventually find out is that as a result of Jesus' having stayed two days longer in the place where he was, that Lazarus died. But yet... This was not an example of Jesus being uncompassionate. For the text itself says that Jesus did this because he loved them. It was because he loved them that he stayed in the place where he was two days longer. He goes on to say, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. You see, God, he, he is, he's doing something. God has a plan and a purpose for this event. It's not, it's not meaningless. There's nothing meaningless that happens. Jesus reveals that the chief and primary purpose for what's going on with Lazarus and his sickness and his death and, and, and how this is affecting his family and all this, all of it connectedly is being used to, for the very purpose that the God would be glorified and that the Son of God would be glorified in this instance. So that by his being glorified, people could recognize and see his glory, and by recognizing and seeing his glory, and knowing who Jesus truly is, believing in him, and having believed in him, having eternal life. Oh, how that should bring much great comfort to our hearts. 
when the storms of affliction are bearing down upon our souls, that all of God's providences for his children proceed out of love for them. For the, uh, the testimony of Scripture rings true. God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If, if you are the person being described in that verse, if you are the lover of God who has been called to his purpose, you need to recognize that all things, all things are being worked for your good. That should, that should give us courage. That should give us strength when we meditate on this. That even the hardships that you endure, if you are a child of God, are the choice providences of him who loves you so dearly as to give his only begotten son for you. And the most lovely thing that God can do for anyone, for any person, is to give them the gift of faith. This is why we sing the song Amazing Grace, because it is amazing. It is absolutely astonishing. And oh, how lovely is it to read that God is using the death of Lazarus for the very purpose that he will be glorified in it, and by his glory being made known, people would see it, they would recognize it, they would know who Jesus is, they would believe in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, having life in his name. How privileged ought Lazarus to feel to be used for such a great and such a wonderful and such a noble purpose, so as to bring people into the knowledge and, and a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what we are going to find as, as we study this passage is the inherent connection between faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and life, specifically eternal life, that these are things that are connected, that you cannot separate. Now, in light of what God has now revealed to us in his word, this, this is a doctrine that is ever so important, that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which one pertain, attains to life, and it, it is in knowing who Jesus is that one may have faith in him, thus gaining him eternal life. This is God's grand and wonderful and beautiful design for why Lazarus became ill, how Jesus responds, and ultimately what will become of the situation. So tonight we are going to be looking at Jesus' grand declaration of who he is, and we are going to be discussing to a degree the spiritual truth that is behind the historical situation that we are reading about. And so my prayer is that we would, we would enjoy this time of worship, we would enjoy this study, that the word of God would be honored, that God would be glorified, and that the spirit of God would apply this truth to our hearts, and that our faith would be increased and our lives would Reflect what it is that we are reading in our Bibles. So in John chapter 11, verse 17, we read this. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus, he, he, he arrives at the scene in the town of Bethany, and when he does so, Lazarus at this point in time has already been dead for four days. Now, it was Jewish custom at this time that when someone died, they would be laid in their tomb almost immediately. So uh, when it says four days Lazarus was in the tomb, this means Lazarus is 100% actually factually dead. And there is great significance to this. As we reflect on the fact that, remember what we have said, 
God's very purpose in all that is happening is to reveal his glory, reveal the glory of Jesus Christ as he is the Son of God, and by doing so, bringing people to faith in him. And so I just want to highlight this so that we can realize and understand that everything is happening exactly as God has orchestrated it to happen. Nothing is happening that has not been with great purpose and intentionality been ordained and is being carried out in the providence of God to accomplish his very specific purpose. Because by this time, it having been four days, everyone's going to know Lazarus is dead. There's, there's not going to be any way to dispute it. In the ancient world, when someone was laid in the tomb and they rolled a stone over it, that's, that's a heavy stone. There's no food getting in there. There's no, there's no water getting in there. All right, Someone who has been in there for four days, laid to rest, they're, they're dead. It's, that's just the simple facts. Amen. And so later on, when Christ calls his name, and he rises and he comes out of the tomb, it will be absolutely certain, absolutely undeniable that a divine miracle has taken place coming forth from the mouth of Jesus. And so in verse 18 we read, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, along the same note as I was just explaining before, that everything happening here is happening to bring about God's specific plan in making known his glory and bringing people to faith in the Son of God, that this event is all going to take place just two miles shy of Jerusalem. Which Jerusalem, most major city in Jewish culture, means a lot of people are going to hear about this. A lot of people are going to hear about it very quickly. And not only will it be many people, but it will be particular people. It will be the Jewish leaders themselves who are in Jerusalem. They will be hearing about what Jesus is doing in this chapter thereby multiplying the effect that God intends for this miracle to have. And so in verse 19, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, it was customary in Jewish culture at this time, and is still to this very day, that when a person dies, there's almost to be a, a community gathering. The neighbors would come and they would provide the first meal after the funeral, and they would, they would follow a practice known as Shiva, which means seven days, where for the next seven days after the funeral, people would essentially gather for the purpose of mourning. So not only do we want to recognize, on the one hand, that the event we're reading about, this is a very, this is a very solemn time, that when Jesus speaks to Martha in this passage, he is speaking to a woman who is still in the process of grieving over the loss of her brother. So she's going to be in a very emotional state, and, and the words that he says are going to have an effect on her. But remember, at the same time, we've also been tracing the very purposes of God through this historical event, that God intends for this to display his glory, to show who Jesus is, and bring a great number of people to faith in him. And so on the one hand, the more and more people that you have mourning over the death of Lazarus, the more and more people are going to, that are going to be there and are going to be amazed when he is called out of that tomb by Jesus' voice. A great theologian John Calvin has said this, For though the desire of performing an office of kindness was their inducement to go, yet they were assembled there, referring to the mourners, 
by a secret decree of God for another purpose, that the resurrection of Lazarus might not remain unknown. When we get to verse 20, we read, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. In this verse, we see a striking similarity to how Mary and Martha are portrayed in Luke chapter 10, with Martha's active, her get-up-and-go, anxious, running around, being distracted with so many things, distracted with her serving, her need to just get up and go and do something, while Mary sits passively at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, contemplatively reflecting on the Lord's teaching. And... And they've just lost their brother, and it's almost like in times of great affliction, in times of great distress, it's almost like our true character really shines forth, and I think we see that here too. Uh, the two poor sisters are enduring grieving the loss of their brother, and, and their true personality shines forth at this moment. And so when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she immediately goes to greet him, so as her character. And in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here, Martha begins to display what can only be described as a confused or imbalanced faith. We know from what Jesus says about her in the Gospel of Luke that she is a woman who is predisposed to be anxious and shaky, troubled by many things, and in the midst of her great trial, as she is grieving over the loss of her brother in the midst of her affliction and her distress and her heartache, her thoughts, her feelings, her emotions, which are scattered. And here we see even a godly woman can have a shaky faith, an imperfect faith. But Jesus still recognizes it. For even in the hearts of true believers, there can be a strange mixture of grace and weakness, especially in times of great emotional struggle. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When she calls Jesus Lord, she's showing him a sign of great respect that Jesus is in some way superior to her, carrying a greater authority, and yet, at the very same time, she speaks as though she were almost complaining, as though she were almost upset with him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her statement here is riddled with distress, riddled with emotion, riddled with passion. Lord, if you had been here, my brother, who I love, would not have died. But here we see the weakness of her faith showing. For while she confesses that Jesus has the power to have stopped Lazarus' illness, she should know that Jesus would not need to be physically present in order to do so. Remember in John chapter 4, at the end of John chapter 4, there is an official who comes to Jesus, his son is ill, and, and he asks Jesus, he says, come down and heal my son. And the way that the text is worded specifically emphasizes the man's desire for Jesus to physically, in the present, come down and, and have Jesus heal his son. But what does Jesus say to that man? He says, unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. And he says, go, your son will live. And without having left to go to the man's son, we read that the very hour Jesus spoke those words, that the boy was healed. And so I think there's two applications we make with this. Uh, for this, we see that Jesus wants his followers to have faith 
even when our outward circumstances might cause us to think he's not really with us. But then once again, we also have, have to have the recognition that once again, Jesus could have healed Lazarus before Lazarus even died. But he, once again, has a very specific and intentional purpose that he is going to work out. And though it may not have been what Martha desired, it may not have been what they wanted, God knew what the best thing to do was. The judge of the earth will always do right. It is in him who we should trust. Martha, with her broken heart, her sadness, her tears, she expresses this confused, this imbalanced faith. She's undoubtedly overcome with emotion and anxiety as she grieves over her brother. But nevertheless, despite its dimness and many flaws, we see that she's holding on. We see she still has this small faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many of us in times of great affliction have felt the same way? Verse 22, she continues, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Even here in verse 22, it is evident that her mind and her passions are flooded with her desire for Jesus to have showed up days ago, healed Lazarus just as she wanted him to, but even though Jesus did not act exactly how she wished for him to act, she still shows this level of belief in him, although her expression is not quite what we would want it to be. Showing us that even true believers can, at times, express only a very dim and vague expression of faith in the midst of the anxiety of the trials in this life. But nevertheless, despite her fears, despite her pain and sorrow over the fact that Jesus did not come right away to heal her brother as she would have wanted him to, she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She still expresses a trust in the power of Christ and that Christ has a connection with God that is unique and clearly beyond comparison of what any normal human being would have. And so as she is flooded with tears and distress, look at how our Lord consoles her. Look at the, look at the counsel that Jesus gives to this grieving woman. He says in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Jesus in this place does not scold the poor woman for her weak faith, but rather he nurtures it in tenderness. Your brother will rise. In the original language, there is no word for again. Jesus simply says, your brother will rise. Jesus speaks words here that have more than one meaning, as we will discuss more fully. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And as is so common for Jesus, his words get misunderstood. Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about the resurrection on the last day. This is a concept that has been brought to light in chapter 5 of John's Gospel where Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is a concept that goes back to the Old Testament and was at the roots of Jewish belief in an eternal physical afterlife. And so this is what Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about in order to console her. 
And yet, she almost seems dissatisfied with this future hope. Now, sadly, even believers can be so distraught with affliction that they find it hard to rejoice in spiritual hopes. The woman, she, she wants a solution now. But Jesus is going to point her towards, show her more directly where she ought to find her solace and her peace. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus points the despairing woman to the most ultimate comfort that any believer can have himself. Jesus said, I am, ego me, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the solution to Martha's weak and troubled faith is in knowing the person of Jesus. The solution to our weak and troubled faith, when indeed it does come, when we experience it in moments of great affl affliction, our solution is Jesus. The more that she learns about Jesus and about who Jesus is, the more she will be able, able to have greater comfort throughout her time of distress. And if the Lord Jesus himself comforted and consoled people by pointing them to him, then should we not also, when we see our brothers and sisters in the faith struggling, should we not also point them to the precious Lamb of God who loves them and has given his life for them on the cross? Should we not also, when we see non-believers struggling with great emotional turmoil, point them to the one who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The solution to all of life's problems, <clears throat> truthfully, is in the person of Jesus Christ. You will not be satisfied. You will not find comfort. You will not find peace. You will not find hope. You will not find meaning. You will not find rest outside of him. The woman is mourning over her lost brother, and, and she thinks about the resurrection on the last day, she thinks about eternal life, to put it simply, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice the exclusivity of the Savior's words in this place. I am the resurrection and the life. If words have any meaning, then the plain understanding of what Jesus is saying is that he and he alone is the resurrection and the life. Thereby, whoever is to find resurrection and life can only find it through Jesus Christ. The Pope is not the resurrection and the life. Mohammed is not the resurrection and the life. Buddha is not the resurrection and the life. Joseph Smith is not the resurrection and the life. Secular atheism is not the resurrection and the life. The things of this world, the money in your bank account, the vehicle you drive, these things are not the resurrection and the life. Amen. Jesus Christ is. That's what he is saying right here. Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten and unique Son of the living God, He and He alone is the resurrection and the life. You will not find resurrection and life outside of Jesus Christ, for it is a power that His very Father has given Him. But notice what He says here. Jesus does not merely say that He will provide resurrection and the life. He says He is 
the resurrection and the life. And the use of both of those two words here is, is critical for understanding Jesus' message here. The word resurrection would generally be used to refer to the resurrection at the end of time, which Martha has just acknowledged, suggesting that Jesus would be talking about a future event. But when Jesus uses the word life as well, life, that, that would more generally be applied to the present. And so these two seemingly distinct things, Jesus combines them. He brings them together, and he shows that they are realities that must be understood in conjunction with one another. You have the, the now and the not yet. You have the now of life and the not yet of resurrection. To help explain what I mean, let us remember uh, back once again to John chapter 5, a passage which explicitly mentions the resurrection at the last day. As I have already said, well, in that very same context, listen to the statement we get from Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in the very, very same place where Jesus clearly speaks of the resurrection at the end of time, he also says that the hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus says that the hour is now here, we must realize that he was not talking about the end of time, because, well, 2,000 years have passed, and here we still are. And so the only way to properly interpret Jesus' words is to realize that he is speaking about passing from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we find this theme elsewhere in, in the Bible. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read that believers were once people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Passing from death to life. Jesus speaks of this spiritual work known as regeneration in the very same context as the final resurrection on, at the last day in chapter 5. So here in this statement, John 11, he does the same thing. Because we are to see these two things as, as coupling realities. They, they go together. The future reality and the present reality cannot be separated. The now and the not yet, they are to be presented to one individual in unison. And so if what I'm saying sounds strange or difficult, I realize that these are not concepts that we, we necessarily talk about a whole lot, at least not with this vocabulary. I think Jesus does a pretty good job of explaining himself, so we're just going to look at what he has to say. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So in this statement, I will submit to you that Jesus is clearly speaking of a future reality, the future resurrection, saying whoever believes in him, 
Whoever puts their faith and their trust in him, though they die, here he is clearly speaking of physical death, though they die, yet shall they live. Now what has been the testimony of Jesus throughout the entirety of this book, the Gospel of John? If you, you've been with me in our Sunday school class, you know that the one who believes in Jesus, by means only of their faith and of no condition or work within them, if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Speaking of the resurrection. Again, in 644, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, referring to every individual drawn to him by the Father. What Jesus has been saying all throughout the Gospel of John is that every single person, without fail and without exception, who comes to him, who believes in him, they will be raised up on the last day. They will enter into the resurrection unto life. Their bodies will be raised up out of their graves and they will be glorified. For Jesus says in John chapter 5, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is clearly what Jesus has in view when he says here in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Eternal life, eternal hope, eternal inheritance in heaven is being promised to you there. But listen to what he says in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, at first glance, uh, Jesus' words would appear to be contradictory. For Jesus just said that if you believe in him, though you will die, he says that a natural physical death is to be expected even for believers. But here he says, if you're a believer, that you won't die. Now, now, we have to harmonize that. What, what, is, what is being said there? Here is where we see that in verse 26, Jesus is combining the two realities of the final resurrection, future hope in heaven, eternal life. He is combining that with the present reality of spiritual life, the work of regeneration, passing from spiritual death to spiritual life, being born again. Look at what he says here. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me, shall never die. Why, do, why does he include that word here in verse 26, but not in verse 25? Well, because in verse 25, when he said, if you believe in him, though you die, you will yet live, he was speaking of a future reality. He is speaking of that which is yet to come. The final resurrection is an event that, as we sit here today, has not happened yet. It is a future event, a future Reality, But what he says in verse 26 is not a future reality, but a present reality. Everyone who lives, present tense, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That word lives, that's present active verb. It is describing the spiritual state that believers have now. Amen. When Jesus talked in John chapter 3 about being born again, he was speaking of a reality which believers partake in the very moment of their regeneration. 
The very moment of conversion, the very moment when the Holy Spirit removes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, the very moment that the old has passed away and they become a new creation in Jesus Christ. It is the act of being brought out, of being dead in trespasses and sin, and being made alive in Christ. And so here is the beautiful thing that we see here in these verses. Jesus says that these are two realities which cannot be separated. You cannot have one without the other. They must go together. They have to go together. For Jesus is not just the resurrection, nor is he just the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And the way, the only way for a person to take part in or be joined to those wonderful, glorious, and breathtaking realities of being set free from the bondage of sin, of having future hope and eternal life, is the only way to have these most amazing things. The only way to attain that is through faith in Jesus Christ. The comfort, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we find in this passage is the reality that through Jesus Christ, through the eternal Son of God, the need to fear death is gone. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Therefore, we ought to be comforted and, and greatly consoled when those who we know that are in Christ, that we love, when they die in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be comforted. We can take consolation. We can also take that same comfort and consolation in contemplating our own mortality, in knowing that not because of anything I've ever done, not because I'm any more righteous than my brother or my neighbor or my coworker or anyone else, not because I was smarter, not because I deserve it, but by grace, by the mercy of God, I can trust and have assurance that by my faith in Him, that the precious Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, has died in full, has paid for every single one of my sins, and that I have hope in life eternal. I have hope in the resurrection, which Jesus here speaks of. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in his life, when he was young in his ministry, I believe this event was in London, but there was a massive uh, cholera outbreak, and he, being of course a minister of Jesus Christ, he, he is called to attend to these sort of things, and he is called to the place of a man who, this man was not a believer, this was a man who throughout his life would mock the young preacher, would mock the things of God, would mock the things of the church. And so Spurgeon, he goes and he visits the sick, this poor dying man, and he's with him in his final moments. And, and it's a, a very somber story to recall. The man remains indignant against God to the very end. Spurgeon watches this man die with no hope, with no hope in life eternal. And that, it's a troubling thing for him. Very same instance of this cholera outbreak in London, Spurgeon is also called to go visit a young woman who is sick. Now this young woman was a believer. 
And what did Spurgeon find? He found a young woman happy, rejoicing, singing hymns, laughing. Why? What was the great difference between these two people dying of the very same illness? Is that one had hope and the other didn't. It can be so easy to be like Martha in this passage. When trials come, when afflictions come, how, how hard is it? How seldomly do we look to spiritual and eternal realities for our comfort? I, every one of you, I know that if you're a Christian, you, you believe in eternal life. I believe in eternal life. And yet, why is it that when a loved one dies, it's still troubling? It's because it's hard. It's hard to comfort yourself with these realities. Why? It's just the nature of our flesh. Our, the nature of our flesh is to be consumed with physical, tangible things. To be consumed with that which we can see and feel right now. It is so hard sometimes, even for believers, like the godly woman in our passage, to face difficulties, even though we, we know spiritual truth. What did Martha say in verse 24? She says, I know. I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew that. She believed that. And yet she was mourning. And yet, yet she was in despair. And yet she was in tears. She knew the truth, but in her weakness was unable to find comfort therein. What is the solution then? It is to look to Jesus. Now I get that that might not make any sense at all. That I just told you. I just confess that I understand how difficult it is to comfort yourself with spiritual realities. But even though it was plain to see Martha was not being comforted in her moment of weakness with her knowledge of theology, with her knowledge of doctrine, did Jesus try to use something else to comfort her? No, he didn't. Jesus did not say, hmm, she knows about the resurrection, yet she is still troubled. And, and, and then try and comfort her by some other means, but that's, that's not what he did. Jesus did. He gave her even more theology. He taught her even more spiritual truths. He gave her the most wonderful counsel that anyone can give. He said, look to me. My child, look to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Even in our moments of weakness, when we are overcome with anxieties and doubts and fears, Jesus pleads, look unto me. If that's the counsel that our Lord gave in the moment of this woman's weakness, then I trust it is good counsel indeed. Jesus tells her these great spiritual things in the midst of her despair, and he says to her, he says to Martha, do you believe this? Now remember, all of the comfort and hope in the spiritual reality of Jesus being both resurrection and the life is only found by those who believe in him. For that, that, that's just what he says. We have to believe that. He said, believe, and though you die, yet you shall live. Believe, and you shall never die. So with great solemnity, this very intense moment in her life, Jesus asks Martha, he says, woman, the hour of trial has come. The moment of truth is upon you. Here you stand, 
you are face to face with the great reality that every human being is headed for. Death. This is the destiny of us all. And Jesus asked her the most important question. This is who I am. I am the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live. And if you live and believe in me, you shall never die. The solution to the fear and the enemy of death is in believing in me. Woman, the hour has come. Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Though as we find later in the chapter in verse 39, this is not a woman with perfect faith as no believer in Jesus has, but we see that it is a true confession of faith nonetheless. She confesses him as Lord. She confesses him as the Christ. She confesses him as the Son of God, as the one who is coming into the world. These are powerful statements about Christ, about his Messiahship as well as his deity. And what's so beautiful about her statement here is that it nearly is identical. It nearly matches exactly with what we read in chapter 20 when John says that the purpose of his book is that you will believe in his name, is that you would believe that Christ is the Son of God. So for the whole context of this passage was about the resurrection and the life, that one is joined to the resurrection and to spiritual life by faith in Christ Jesus. When Jesus asked her, if she believes, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And in chapter 20, verse 31, we read, These words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us all, with great confidence, draw near to Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. He promises, and his promise rings true. His promise is true for me, and it's true for you. He promises that if we come to him in faith, that the pain and sorrow death will be washed away, that we will have true, meaningful, spiritual life in his name. If there is a soul out there who is sitting under my voice tonight, I bid you, you must heed these words which I speak to you. You, you must take these things to heart. What we have talked about, the future resurrection, the present spiritual life, these are not just some floaty, ethereal concepts for philosophers to think about. These are true things. These are things that matter. These are things that God is telling you about in his Bible. The same God who created you and will judge you and will judge the living and the dead impartially in all righteousness, he is the one who wrote these words. It will be his judgment which casts sinners into the lake of fire for eternity will be his judgment, which will bring destruction and damnation upon many peoples who die in their sins. And Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is a serious matter. This is a serious thing. The Bible says that it is a tragic thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I beg you, I plead with you, poor sinner, do not neglect such a great salvation. The day of salvation is today. Do not wait. Tomorrow is not promised. And we know from our own experience, we know that death is coming. You are nearer to death this moment than you were before you walked in here tonight. 
You are closer to death, you are closer to eternity right now than you've ever been in your entire life. So heed the call of the Savior who has the power to deliver men and women from their sins. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I ask you the same question that he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Oh, how happy is the man or the woman who believes these great truths. What joy do they have? What power and strength do they have? How great is it to rest in comfort of knowing that though we have sinned mightily against our God, that he has pardoned us, that he has delivered us from the bondage of sin and from the fear of death as well. Let us with Paul herald that great line of doxology in his epistle to the Philippians. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let us live for him while we still can, who is the resurrection and the life. I want to thank you for your attention tonight. Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you. We thank you, dear God, for your promises. Father God, we, we think about our own sin. We think about our own unrighteousness, and we lament over it, dear God. We, we are pained and we are troubled by our own sin, dear God, and we know, we know that it would not only be just, it would be exceedingly just to throw this preacher, to throw every sinner into damnation for all eternity right this very moment. Dear God, I know that I deserve that, but Lord, look at your promises. Look at the glory that you've revealed to us in your word. Dear God, you promised that if we believe in you, that, that we, when we die, we shall have life. And that when we live and believe in you, that we shall never die. Dear God, how merciful you are. How you will pardon poor sinners who call upon your name. Dear God, we thank you for this truth. Father God, we just pray that this truth would be shouted from the housetops. That it would be heralded throughout this nation. That, that a great many poor sinners, as, as numerous as the sands of the sea, they would hear your word. They would hear the voice of the Son of God. And they would pass from death to life. Father God, help us to live lives that look like we believe this. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.